Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. We are continuing our series in Matthew, and today we'll be in chapter 18. Let's start with a question. If you do not blank, your Father in heaven will not forgive your trespasses. Can you recall what is missing in the statement uttered by the Lord Jesus after his exemplary prayer? Whatever it is, it must be a grievous sin. If you do not blank, my Father in heaven will not forgive you. The answer is forgive others their trespasses. The tragedy of an unforgiving spirit is that it's one that will not be forgiven. Perhaps the strongest teaching in all of Scripture regarding the topic of forgiveness can be found in Matthew chapter 18, as it so powerfully illustrates the rationale and necessity of forgiveness, as well as the consequences of unforgiveness. It will take us two sessions to get through this unit. Chapter 18 is the fourth of five longer discourses in Matthew, and though it has received various labels, something like church life or community instructions works just fine. In our first session, we will discuss the importance of forgiveness in verses 12 through 22, which lay the groundwork, first in God's action in seeking forgiveness in verses 12 through 14, and then in the church's command to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation in verses 15 through 22. And then in our next session, we will look at how the Lord Jesus illustrates the connection of these two ideas in the parable of the unforgiving servant. Let's begin by reading Matthew 18, verses 12 through 22. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but... 77 times. The unit on forgiveness begins in verses 12 to 14. Now, depending on your translation, you might be tempted to put verse 11 in there. In the New King James Version, verse 11 reads, quote, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. End quote. But these verses are missing from our earliest manuscripts and were probably added from Luke 19.10. 
It's not impossible that they're original, and if they are, then we can put them in the unit under discussion. Verses 12 to 14 beautifully portray the heart of God like that of a shepherd for his sheep, not willing that any should perish. This can be contrasted with the Gospel of Thomas, which records a similar saying in Logion 107, quote, Jesus says, The kingdom is like a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. One of them went astray, the largest. He left the ninety-nine, and he sought the one until he found it. And after he had toiled, he said to the sheep, I love you more than the ninety-nine. End quote. In contrast, the biblical account presents Jesus' parable as teaching the Father's will is that none should perish. And in fact, the rescued aren't the biggest, they're the little ones. The purpose of this parable isn't to describe good shepherding techniques. From a business standpoint, I can see how it would be unwise, a great risk, to leave so many sheep unattended. But the very bizarre shepherding technique serves to highlight the surprising affection the Father has for those who are lost. The unit actually functions as a hinge. In the previous verses, we find that the church must take whatever action it can hyperbolically even cutting off our hands and feet or plucking out our eyes so that it does not cause someone to perish. We must be a group of the church that is fanatical about holiness. In a day of permissiveness and licentiousness, this is an important message for us. And yet, the responsibility goes beyond doing all we can to stop sin from occurring, but also extending forgiveness when there has been sin. As wise of a strategy as prevention is, we also have to be concerned about cures. And that is the section which follows in, which follows verses 12 through 14, in which the process of reconciliation is described within the church. In fact, this ministry of reconciliation, to borrow a phrase from Paul, entrusted to the church is so crucial that its results are described as either gaining a brother, verse 15, or being excluded from the community, verse 17. Like our Heavenly Father, the church is not to be passive in the process, waiting around for if people will come to their senses and want to be forgiven. Like shepherds looking for sheep, we are to go to our sinning brother, trying to make things right, trying to win him back, so much so that we are to do this even if we are the ones sinned against. The church must extend forgiveness and seek reconciliation. But at this point, someone might be whispering, Who is this who speaks such blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And yet, remarkably, the action of God in seeking reconciliation is put back to back with the work of the church. So much so that we even read, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is a difficult statement to interpret, but whatever it means, binding and loosing clearly have to do with the forgiveness of sins. How can mere mortals, sinners themselves, be given such an important task? Well, verses 19 to 20 provide the answer. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, the point of this text goes way beyond the simple way that it is often used. Like, we can still have a prayer meeting as long as there are two or three warm bodies in the pews. There was a law, likely in effect at the time of Jesus, that Jewish councils insisted on three judges to decide smaller cases, 
assuming that in such a meeting, the Shekinah was there with them. The actual quote from the Mishnah is, quote, But if two sit together and words of Torah are spoken between them, then the divine presence rests between them. End quote. If this tradition goes all the way back to early in the first century, then it is likely that Jesus is playing off the statement that if two or three of his followers make a verdict on a case in the church community, he, corresponding to the Shekinah, the divine presence, will rest between them, granting or withdrawing forgiveness. Of course, for all the similarity in God's actions in creating reconciliation and the church's participation in that same endeavor, there are certainly significant differences between the church's role and God's role. When I say the church is in the forgiveness business, empowered by the divine Shekinah glory of the Lord Jesus, this could be misunderstood to mean that we somehow affect someone's salvation. But we see how the keys of the kingdom are used in the book of Acts, when Peter preaches the gospel to the Jews at Pentecost or to Cornelius' household. He says things like Acts 10.43, To him give all the prophets witness that whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, will receive the forgiveness of sins. It is Jesus who makes the forgiveness of sins possible. Now this is clearly demonstrated in Matthew. We've already seen this. As early as 121 in the angel's announcement, uh, he will be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then in the climactic moment at the Last Supper, Jesus explains the significance of what is about to happen in his crucifixion. He is giving his body and blood, the blood of the covenant, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And yet, God has condescended to include us in this cosmic mission, or what John Nolan calls the forgiveness project. The role we play when it comes to participating in this project is the privilege of sharing that message of salvation. That's why the binding and loosing keys were first given to Peter in chapter 16. Upon knowing who Jesus is as the Messiah, Peter then is in a position to open up the gates of the kingdom. We are not the ones who bring into being someone's salvation, but we are the ones who get the privilege, the glorious privilege, of sharing who Jesus is and communicating the gospel. And when we do so, we are carrying out and extending this messianic mission, the forgiveness project that God entrusted to the Lord Jesus and that we just saw characterize the Father in verses 12 to 14. Forgiveness really is that important. But one of the difficult kinds of forgiveness is when a person sins against us. In fact, these different categories of uh, forgiveness, including their connection, is powerfully illustrated in the following parable. Let, let's at least look at the introduction right now. We all have problems, but uh, pe some people, maybe you know the kind that I'm talking about, pass their allotted quota. Peter's question logically follows from the difficulty of extending forgiveness in verse 21. Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? There's good reason to think that Peter probably sees himself as being generous. Rabbinic Judaism will eventually say, if a man commits a transgression the first, second, and third time he is forgiven, and the fourth time he is not. That's from the Babylonian Talmud. So again, on the assumption that this tradition goes back as, uh, as far as the first century, it seems like Peter has taken the allotted quota, doubled it, and then added one for good measure. And seven seems to be right, as it's the number of completion. 
We aren't given the inflection with which to read this statement, but I imagine a slight nod, a smile, and a look of self-satisfaction on Peter's face. Mr. Spiritual, Mr. Gracious. But the question itself is misguided and misses the significance of God's desire to rescue the perishing in verses 12 to 14. As commentator R.T. France says, quote, Peter's question was misconceived if one is still counting, however generously, one is not forgiving, end quote. Peter's question comes from a place of over-identifying with God in his mission, forgetting how he really fits in the scenario. How easily Christians in Peter-like spirit view themselves as the missionaries, forgetting that we're also the mission field. And this leads Jesus to tell one of the most vivid and graphic parables of his earthly ministry. It's not entirely clear, by the way, if Jesus' response is 70 times 7 or if it's 77. But really, it's of no concern at all. Uh, The point is an unlimited number, as the following parable will make clear. Even the larger number, 490, will pale in comparison to the magnitude of the numbers used in the following parable. But at this point, let's stop and think about what some application might be for us today. We've been talking about the importance of participating really in the same mission of the Lord Jesus in extending God's forgiveness. We are to be like him and see people who are lost as sheep uh, and have compassion on them. Is there someone that you can think of right now that needs to know about the forgiveness that is offered in the Lord Jesus? What is stopping you from being like a compassionate shepherd, abandoning other pursuits to go and present them with this important message of God's forgiveness? My prayer and desire is that whatever it is, you would overcome that hurdle and join God in this great project, that you would join the Lord Jesus in extending reconciliation to others. Uh, At the end of the day, whatever things we have going on, everything really is insignificant in comparison to seeing someone, someone else be gained as that lost sheep back into the fold. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu slash partner.